Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. It's hard to believe, but yes, it's possible. There can be an argument in which all points of view are categorically wrong. There can be a situation in which everyone is absolutely certain and at the same time have absolutely no idea what they are doing. It's not only possible, but typical of human power structures. The king is blind. His mistress is blind. Her daughter is blind. The mob, who fancy themselves admirers of the Lord's prophet, are blind. The king's dinner guests are blind. Together, these buffoons form a government of the people, by the people, and for the king in opposition to the kingdom of God. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 6 to 12. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 311 of the Bible as Literature podcast. What's so interesting about Scripture and about Matthew's handling of King Herod of the Herodian dynasties, Richard, is that it always seems to come back down to the same old thing. This tension between what is lawful and the fear that controls the crown. We've said many times over the past few episodes that the mob has a part to play in tyranny. The mob is afraid, and so they look to the king for security. And the king, of course, is afraid of the mob. (laughs) So the king will do whatever the mob says, and the mob will do whatever the king says. And you have a perfect example of the blind leading the blind. Every leader wants stability so that things can get done. In order to create stability, they may have to squash some chaos that they perceive, but ultimately what they want is to control the area so that it's stable, so they can do what they want to do. Even though he's just talking about who he can marry, the fact that there's been this John the Baptist preaching this word, a kingdom that's coming, is recognized by Herod as a threat. That's why he's saying, oh, When Jesus speaks, this is John raised from the dead. This teaching of Jesus and John that there is a kingdom that is coming means that there's going to be a huge disruption to the stability that Herod needs as an earthly king. The kingdom of heaven is complete peace and stability because it is God, the one who created the heavens and the earth, who is the ultimate king, the one who's able to provide stability, just like he did in the first seven days of creation. Scripture was written against empire. It was written against the king in a universal sense, in a specific sense, as Father Paul points out again and again in his 
explication of Genesis, that there is a showdown with the Hellenistic tyrants, the philosopher kings of Plato's ungodly teaching. But it's true in a functional sense. You can look at power operating in the world. You look at the relationship between religious fundamentalism and the current president, and you see a template lifted from the Old Testament. You see the sycophancy of Israel from the scriptural tradition on display in American public life, all because of this fascination, this worship of kingly power on earth, which is driven by our fears. We know what happens in scripture when Israel sucks up to the king. We know what happens when they make a deal with a foreign king or with an imposter. It doesn't turn out well. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Remember that in last week's episode, in verse 3 of chapter 14, we learned that Herod wanted Herodias for himself. It's a classic problem. I mean, what's funny about this example is that you can point to examples in ancient and modern history where the king wants someone for himself, (laughs) and the religious official says, you can't have her. So what does he do? He throws John in prison so that he can have her. He was upset. He persecuted John. And remember, John is also a metaphor for the apostle Paul. He persecuted the one who was sent to deliver the instruction because he didn't like what the instruction had to say. This instruction is particularly important because we have to understand that Herod is Jewish and bound by Torah. So this is why John is able to approach him with this directive. Now, of course, like you say, Father, the king wants to have what he wants to have, and this is the ultimate tension. When the king sees that there should be something that he can have so that he can rule, he wants to be able to exercise his power. When he can't exercise his power, that's when there's a problem. This is why earthly kings cannot be compatible with the kingdom of heaven, because earthly kings need to be able to use their earthly power if they're going to consider themselves kings. Be suspicious of rulers who claim to be Christian. How can they claim to be Christian when their position itself runs up against the kingdom of heaven and the king who rules that kingdom? Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. He doesn't want to obey God. He wants to obey the crowds. (laughs) It's a very interesting scenario where his inclination is to go against God and at the same time to do whatever the mob wants, which puts him in a tough spot because they like John the Baptist. He's popular. It's really condemning Herod. This sandwich between verse 4 and 5 is really something because Herod is isolated by his desires and his fears. It's ironic because we just finished the last chapter where Jesus was not recognized as a prophet in his own country. What we're getting at here between the end of chapter 13 and here at the beginning of chapter 14 is this fickleness of who's a prophet and who isn't a prophet. The problem is for people at the synagogue in the end of 13, Jesus's genealogy is the reference point. Well, if this is the son of Mary and these are his brothers, then how can he be a prophet? Whereas Herod, the reference point is the crowds. Well, if the crowds think he's a prophet, then we need to take him seriously. Not what he says, of course, just the danger that he poses. This importance of 
where the reference point is, is central. Neither one is using Scripture as the reference point. They're either using their own experience with what they see with their eyes and knowing Jesus' genealogy as the son of Mary, or they're using what the crowds think and whatever the crowds might do to Herod's earthly power. Who Jesus is, who the prophet is, who John the Baptist is, only functions with respect to Scripture. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod, so much so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. It's very difficult here in verse 7 not to think once again of the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. What right has Herod to swear against anything. He doesn't own one hair on his head. It's important, again, that it is a king taking an oath, because in the minds of those who are not scripturalized, the king is the proprietor in the land. But if you are scripturalized, you understand that the father of Jesus is the proprietor. He is the only king. So what right has Herod to swear an oath? Neither by heaven nor by the earth, as Jesus says, because the Lord has dominion over the heavens and the earth is his footstool. He is the king. By Herod not following this directive, he is showing the problem precisely with earthly power. The king has the earthly power, and by pronouncing this oath, he gives this power over to Herodias. Herodias is not the king. One thing that as Americans we get confused by is we think that power is either something good or something bad. It's not something good or something bad. It's functional and it's how it's used. If Herod wants to keep stability, he has a duty to keep stability and to keep peace by following the law of God and by placing himself as a servant. Now, what I said before, he's always going to be running into problems with the king of kings when he himself is only a king. But he has a duty to exercise his authority with wisdom, according to Scripture. He places himself under Herodias, and as a result, threatens the stability that he was seeking in the first place. He wanted to keep stability by keeping John the Baptist around. But once he said, hey, Herodias, you can have whatever you want just because I want to have you, Herod makes himself a slave to Herodias. Rather than making himself a slave to God, to the one who brought the word through John the Baptist, he instead enslaved himself to this earthly power. So now not only does he care about the crowds, now he cares about what this woman thinks. And guess what? When they come into conflict, Herod has a crisis. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. So we have in verse 8, once again, the breadcrumb that leads us along the trail to the connection between John the Baptist and the Apostle Paul. And then verse 9 deals again with the condemnation of the oath. The funny thing is, when Herod transgresses the Sermon on the Mount and makes an oath as though he has a right to swear by anything. He inevitably makes himself a slave of those whom he fears. He fears the dinner guests. Fear and the tyranny of the mob and the tyranny of 
the earthly king. These things all work together to form a coalition of the blind. It is the blind leading the blind into slavery. And once you understand this dynamic, you realize how important Paul's co-opting of slavery is in the New Testament. Because if you transfer your slavery and your servitude from stupidity, the stupidity of Herod, the foolishness of Caesar, the ugliness of Pharaoh, if you transfer your servitude and your slavery from these buffoons to the throne of God the Father, which is manifest to us as instruction, you are set free. You are saved the misery of having to follow the blind into destruction. What kind of a king listens to his dinner guests, for heaven's sake? Sadly, probably all the kings do. This is how they function. I mean, it's funny, you know, we get surprised when a president starts acting erratically by just listening to the whims of their advisors or caring about their base so much that they do irrational things. This is Herod appealing to his base. I mean, this is how it works. Herod was afraid of the crowds, afraid of Herodias. Now he's afraid of the dinner guests. Little kids, you know, when they don't get candy, think one day I'm going to be king of the world, one day I'm going to be president of the world, and I'm going to eat all the candy I want. They think that by becoming the king or the president of the world, they're going to be able to run the entire show. But as we see from this, the reality is Herod doesn't get to make any decisions. Herod lets the crowd make the decision, or his girlfriend make the decision, or his dinner guests make the decision, and he is only there to broker these different decisions to try to upset the fewest number of people. If Herod can upset the fewest number of people, then he's considered a successful king. He does not get to have everything he wants, like the little kid who wants to be king or queen of the world. He has to do exactly what everyone around him says. And this is where the king of kings is different than the earthly king. This is where the Lord is different than those who call themselves Lord on earth. He doesn't have to listen to anybody. Nothing gets in the way of following the wisdom of Torah and the wisdom of this teaching. And he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. Here, it's important to note that not only is John the Baptist beheaded, but he's in prison. It's hard, again, not to think about the connection to Paul, who was imprisoned by the Romans. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. The mother gets ultimately to decide how things go in the kingdom. The mother wants to be married to the king so that she has power, and that means that the mother gets power. The king, Herod, wants to continue to have power by saving face in front of his guests, even though he might upset the crowds. Once he has to save face, he's even willing to sell out the crowds. So any hope that the prophecy would have, even if he understands John the Baptist as a prophet for the wrong reasons, because he's making the wrong reference point, at least the word can continue. But because Herod sells out himself and sells out the authority given to him as king in order to make his girlfriend and his new mother-in-law happy, everything begins to fall apart. As we said before, the people at the synagogue were incapable of seeing Jesus as a prophet, and ultimately Herod has to sell out John, even though the crowds that he's worried about might think he's a prophet. The prophets are the ones who end up 
ignored, and silenced. His disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported it to Jesus. Again, I'm going to come back to the parallel with the Apostle Paul and the way in which Matthew turns the resurrection narrative around. He flips it because Paul is the one in the Gospel of Mark who makes straight the path of the Lord in the wilderness according to Isaiah so that the Christ can then move forth and conquer. Now here in verse 12, you have John murdered and the body is buried, which has already, if you understand the whole context of Matthew, has a paschal ring to it. But then it's the second half of the phrase where they reported it to Jesus. Essentially, they are proclaiming the news. They are proclaiming the death of John the Baptist. They are proclaiming the death of the Apostle Paul to the Christ. And the word in Greek for reported is apangelo. If you hear it in Greek, it has the sound of the proclamation of the good news. This is a sign. It is a scriptural sign of God's judgment, just like the resurrection of Jesus. At the end of 13, Jesus was leaving the synagogue because they were scandalized at Jesus, his works and his words, and they couldn't recognize him. And then we move to a Jesus who is receiving the sad news of what happened to John the Baptist, who was his kin in that he was preaching the same word as Jesus. So what does this do literarily? Because why did we have to bring in a whole story about John the Baptist? Why didn't we just continue with Jesus? Why do we need this whole story? And what I think is happening here is we really see what the stakes are. When people confuse Jesus's message, when people confuse this message of the kingdom of God, people die, people are persecuted, people misuse power, and this is the inevitable end of misuse of power, the inevitable end of ignoring this message. We can't take lightly the fact that they were scandalized by Jesus in the synagogue, because it leads to this precisely, the imprisonment and beheading of those who would preach this word. So I think this chapter, this first half of the chapter, really raises the stakes on what Jesus is doing. Hopefully, this is going to be a bucket of cold water on the disciples who think that this is a game. This is very serious business. This is why Jesus has been so impatient to get this word out, because he knows that as soon as you light the fuse on the gospel, it's going to explode, and the person giving the message is going to end up with his head on a platter or some other equivalent end. Ultimately, the dread that you think is applied to the one who is persecuted transfers to Herod. It transfers to the king. It reminds me of the parable of the sower. Because here you have someone, John the Baptist, who did not shy away from the imperative of the seed of God's instruction when the going got tough. Now he's been murdered. Is the murder a sign of his destruction or a biblical sign of Herod's destruction? This is how the resurrection functions in the New Testament. There is a judgment that is wrapped up in the death and the proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here in this beautiful pericope about Herod, we have a kind of mini Paschal narrative in which Matthew is conveying the showdown between the resurrected Christ and Julius Caesar 
The death of Christ is a threat to Caesar. The death of John is a threat to Herod. And for those who trust in the Evangelion, we trust in this victory. So it's not clear that the beheading ultimately is a defeat in the New Testament. And that is, of course, why John the Baptist in our tradition is depicted holding his head on a platter in the way that others hold the gospel and often he's holding his head and also holding a scroll proclaiming the call to repentance. Thanks very much. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.